Hi, I'm Holiday Kirk, and thank you for listening to the New Metal Agenda podcast. If you want to help further expand the New Metal Agenda, check us out on patreon.com slash newmetal underscore agenda. Membership perks include ad-free episodes, Patreon-exclusive podcasts, the ability to submit questions for guests ahead of time, free merch, and more. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Ladies, gentlemen, people that don't give a fuck, I am Holiday Kirk from the New Metal Agenda. With me today, we've got, from his car... The Cran Father. You look like you're about to record some vaguely racist rant. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, it's you really do. It's a meme. Everyone, yeah, Riv gets it. Riv gets it. Riv gets no. it. Not like appearance. Okay, one of us, one of the four, whatever. Anyway, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm also good. Riviera coming to us live from the Unabomber's cabin. Basically. A joke so nice, I had to tell it twice. Big celebrity guest in the building. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show billy martin of the esteemed good charlotte what's up guys how are we doing we're doing good grandfather asked me i think yesterday he goes he goes wait a minute what are billy martin's new metal bona fides again so and i think that's a fair question for sure i, I do play the game uh i do like to to like play fast and loose with the definition of new metal but i will be the first to tell you good charlotte are not a new metal band definitely not but but you did do Dalliance around the same time as new metal bands. And I think that you came up through similar channels. And I think what I'm curious about, because it's like, I don't, I don't, I've been like, I've been telling people this. It's like, I don't want to just do podcast episodes on the same couple of bands week after week. I'm curious as to the experiences of bands that were around during the, the same time and rubbing shoulders. So um, good Charlotte's first debut album comes out in uh, 2000 on Epic records and yep. I was when I was studying up on your band, what I really like about you guys, Rocket Charlotte, that a lot that you have in common with a lot of new metal bands, you guys were just very nakedly ambitious. You were like, we want this to work. We are not here for the cred. We are not here for the scene laudits. We are not here to play the same dive bars every weekend. We are going to be huge. And I actually respect that a ton. It's like something that I think all the new metal bands had in common, like Limp Bizkit and Korn. They all wanted yeah. to be successful bands. But you guys were pop punk, shall we say. And and coming from like a punk background, that's like not cool, man. Did you guys notice any friction in those early years of being like sellouts? Of course, but I'm I'm gonna rewind it a little bit because I think it will it will give our a context to this whole thing a little better better. So like, I may be known as a punk pop punk band member, but I am new metal like through and through from like day one. Okay, when I joined Good Charlotte, I had dreadlocks down in my shoulders. I was like Adidas out. Like I grew up on all new metal. I had never even like listened to pop punk when I met the guys in Good Charlotte. Like it was the complete opposite world for me. Like. You know, if people ask me what my favorite bands are. I'm like, oh, it's Deftones and Corn. Like, no question. Like, I don't even have to think about it. Those are my two favorite bands. Those bands mean more to me than any pop punk band out there. So, you know, to, to, so sure, the funny thing is we would get questioned all the time. People would be like, oh, they're like a manufactured major label punk group. Like, I'm going to test their punkness in this interview. I'm going to ask them these like deep punk questions. And I right away, I was like, I'm going to fail, you know, because I don't know anything about any of that stuff. And I was like, I'm going to fail because like, oh, he's not punk. And I'm like, like, no, I'm not punk. You know, like I'm not. Um, I just thought that we were like an alternative rock band or something, you know, and then pop punk. I don't even think it was like a term when we really came. It was, but it was like a really small niche term. It wasn't like this big mainstream thing. Um, 
so yeah you know there was a lot of flack when people want you to have that that cool pop punk credibility um and people tried to test us and there was a lot of that at the beginning but it was kind of one of those things like you said like we're here to we want to be we want to do arenas we want to have platinum records we're trying to go big like we're not trying to play like those little dinky punk bars so um sure there was f some flack for that but we were very confident in what we were doing and like i think it's funny because if you guys had been a new metal band and you had put your new metal debut out in the year 2000 you guys would have you guys would have like it, it wouldn't have worked it wouldn't work because the 2000 and especially in 2002, new metal bands were getting signed and dropped fast because that scene was the wave was like you were on the other end sure, of that road. Yeah. You're going downhill. Whereas with you guys. So the Good Charlotte debut LP comes out in 2000. Now it did underperform, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it did. So it underperformed. So like 2000 would have been right in the middle between new metal being the big thing and pop punk becoming the big thing. And like, sure. I think what's interesting. So what I wonder is like, how did you guys scramble in the wake of that disappointment to be like, not again? Because I, I can think of a lot. I'm very interested in those bands that got scooped up by big labels, kind of faltered in their first step and then went went poof. You know, we were just like, let's go on tour and like just never stop touring. I mean, I think that the year that album came out, I literally think we managed to do more than 365 shows in the year. There was days where we would play somewhere, we would drive three hours and then play another show that night. Like, I, I honestly think that we could have possibly, you know, played every single day for like two years straight. Um, and I think that you build like a foundation of fans like we you play the show then you walk right out to the merch booth and you say hi to the fans you 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 go out and you just you try to make like you know real connections with the fan base and try to have people who have a memorable experience and they, and they become real fans you know they go home with the shirt they buy the cd at the merch booth back then and they didn't know your band and and they go home with these memories and next time you come through they're like yo we got to go see good charlotte again that was awesome the concert was great the guys were so cool and like so for us it was like we just need to build that foundation so that like if the radio isn't going to play us, if MTV isn't going to play us, if this isn't going to happen, we've got this like solid fan base that we can continue to tour on for the rest of our life. So that was really it for us was like tour, tour, tour. And we toured for three years straight. I think we maybe only sold 300,000 copies of the first record. Like it didn't even go gold. And the record label was kind of like, huh, should we let him do another record or not? You know, and, and you know, we were just like, you know, let us put the work in and it was kind of crazy like we went in to do the second record not knowing that it would do well you know no, nothing had changed between the first and second record besides touring and um it just worked you know we took a few months off we went out to warp tour when that second record came out we go on stage the first day and the people were just there and the record label was like okay like it worked people are showing up and we we got to double down on this band if you've ever wondered by the way just how long ago the year 2000 was imagine selling 300,000 copies of your debut album and your record label going yeah not i don't good. know guys not, right Ooh, brutal and, and there's all kinds of bands that i can think of from this era like might... no what were we gonna say what oh um sorry everything was just lagging out for a second there you guys were super young on that first tour right yeah, I was still in a senior in high school. Yeah, like I had to have yeah. my parents. When I signed Epic Records, I was still a senior in high school. And um, I'm the youngest in the band. So the other guys were a few few mm -hmm. years out of high school. Um, I was still a senior. And, you know, I had to have my parents come in and talk to the principal and be like, 
yeah, he's signing a record deal and he has to go to LA for two weeks to record the album and he's gonna miss some school. And they were like, well, technically this could go under like a work release program because he has a job. And I was like, yeah, okay. So like they kind of worked it into my school schedule where, you know, some kids would get out early to go to work and stuff. And they're like, this is his job. So it was a crazy time, you know? So yeah, we were super yeah. young and literally, uh, um, you know, we, we went to LA to do our record for a couple of weeks. I came home just in time to do graduation, you know, walked across the stage. And then the very next day I got in the van and, and left to go on tour. And, and I was gone for, you know, two years after that. Seems like you were gone. No, you you kind of never came back. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, like we kept going, going and going forever. And, and until we started to get older and, you know, get married and have kids. And we're like, okay, we got to slow down a little bit. But up until then, no, we kind of just went crazy forever. Well, let me check on this. So a point that I'm belaboring on this show and with our guests a lot is how fascinated I am in the uh, entrepreneurial commercial mindset of new metal bands, which is derived from like rap and hip hop as of from our, those artists, those new metal artists seeing rap and hip hop just basically jump in the game and just sell all the way out. And it's fine. It's like encouraged. It's cool. And I think that new metal bands were like, why the fuck can't we do that? Because, you know, sure. you're coming off of grunge era and grunge was like the most hyper, like no selling out yeah. scene ever. And you also had Green Day getting signed and blowing up coming from uh, their local scene. And what was that San Francisco? Yeah, yeah you know, Berkeley, like Bay Area. Yeah, the whole right. Area. And, right, and yeah. then and then just and, and the people from like the Berkeley and Bay Area being like, fuck those guys. Of course. And it's yeah. impossible to imagine now. But uh, it like imagine selling 10 million records and still being insecure about what the people in like the Berkeley Bay Area scene yeah. think of you. That's like insane, but that's that's what it was like in the 90s. Is like that was you didn't want to get tested like that. But new metal bands came came along and were just like fuck all that shit. We are going to be millionaires. So where it and you guys being like 19 years old, where did that uh entrepreneurial mindset come from i mean i do have to give up a lot to the twins like benji and joel have always been very business savvy um they love sure, that but within within three years of the year 2000 you had your own clothing brand i mean sure yeah all those kind of things we were always trying to think bigger you know what i mean it was always like what could we do that the other bands are not doing because sometimes you go up on stage or you go to a festival and you're like man, I feel like I just saw like five of the same bands in a row. Like, how can you, what, what separates these bands? What can you do different? Like what makes, what would make our band stand out? So, you know, we thought everything to like the image, the way we looked and then had to make sure that like, if the kids coming to the show were like, oh, I love this band. I want to look like my favorite band. We'll be like, cool. Well, here's the clothes that we're wearing. They're available to, you know, you can buy the same clothes. Or like, you, you just have to think that. Cause I remember we had like a manager early on who told us like, the goal is the girls want to fall in love with you and the guys want to be you. If you can figure that out, you're good because most bands have one or the other. You know what I mean? And we yeah. definitely had way more female fans than male fans, for sure. You know, now I think it's very 50-50 when you do the shows, but starting out, it was a lot more just like young teenage girls who were coming to the shows. And that's the best. That's who buys merch. You know what I mean? Like young teenage girls are the best merch buyers. So like, you know, for people to turn their back and be like, Oh, I wish we had all the bro fans. I'm like, cool, but you know, like the teenage girl you know fans what? are the best fans for sure. That so here's what I find fascinating. Uh so Enema of the State, Blink 92 had come out in 99, blows up huge. Uh, and I think labels kind of rushed in and thought, like, this is the next scene. This is where things are going. And I think that labels listened to Enema of the State and were like, Oh, these guys are weird about women. Let's sign a bunch of like misogynistic pop punk bands and that's how like sr 71 and zebrahead got their deals it was like let's sign bands that are even more immature about women than they are and those bands tanked yeah like, i think that was a total misstep so we're whereas you guys must have seen other bands go and do 
these shows to the bros and like try to like capitalize on that market, your mind was more like, we've seen TRL, we've seen what, you know, what that fan base of women can do. Let's go for that instead, which is really aged well too uh, at the same time. Sure. And I don't think we knew that right away at first, you know, it was like when you're young, you're not thinking about all that stuff. First, it's like, let's just like, let's record the album. Like that's step one. Like, oh my gosh, we get to go on an album and like record with like a big producer in a studio. But it's really until you like start going on tour and you start realizing who are the people like, oh, so these like three or four girls, they've been to eight shows in a row now. They've like, we're a nobody band and they've come to like eight shows in a row. And they were like, we came to the first show to see the headliner, but you guys killed it. And now we're coming to these shows to see you guys. And then you just, you start paying attention to like, who's coming to the shows and, and who are the, the real fans. And it was always girls, you know? And then you just start to realize like, okay, that's our fan base. I think for every one good Charlotte though, there were 10 other pop punk bands that listen to Dumpweed and were like, oh, he needs a girl that he can train. We can be way meaner than that. And that <laughs> did not fucking work out at all. No, you know, and like we didn't, there's actually like no cuss words on Good Charlotte's first, first two albums. There's no, maybe even first three albums. There's no, and that wasn't an intentional thing. Like, let's make sure we're, we're clean or anything like that. I think it was just like a, you know, like, like not only girls would come to the shows, but, but, but. You know, and it's always hard to, to to use the correct words, but like damaged people, people who went through like bad shit in their life, people who had like bad relationship with their parents or kids who like did not have friends or kids who were like really struggling and they would come to our concerts and be like, I feel like I, I hear your songs and I feel like you guys went through some of these struggles. You know, you guys came from a broken home or like maybe a household that didn't have everything and like they connect with that stuff right away and then you start to realize like okay so that's the fan base it's it's like misfits who don't have anywhere else to belong but when they're here they're like oh i'm with my people right now like i feel like i i do belong now at the good charlotte concert and a lot of them were girls that were insecure and stuff like so it's just weird it's almost like you can't pick your fan base. I think a lot of bands do that. We want to make music for these people, but it's impossible. I think you have to make your music that you're passionate about and then see who who attracts to that music and then move forward from there and say, okay, how now now how do we move forward knowing who likes what we like doing? You know, and, and it's it's a definitely a little bit of back and forth and a learning experience. So as a as a uh, a dyed in the wool new metal head though, did you find the shift towards pop punk and punk difficult? Or were you like, okay? A little difficult because like, you know, so the, fun, the funny thing is that I was in like a different band uh, in high school, like that was a, like a very new metal band, you know, and I was the front man. I had like, you know, I had my dreadlocks and, you know, like the my PRS and my Mesa Boogie, like all, all the like, you know, new metal check marks, you know, eyebrow ring, wallet chain, you got it, you know, like full on, like that was my deal. And uh, my band would play with Good Charlotte, but they were just a four piece at the time. There wasn't a, uh, there wasn't a, a lead guitar player. Benji was the only guitar player. And, you know, we were just good friends and our bands would play together a lot. And and um, they would just kind of be like, yo, you should come to our band instead. I'm like, no, nah, I can't leave my band and go to your band. And like, no, nah, it would be fun. And I just kept thinking, but like everything I did was like low tuning and like riff bass and everything they were doing was just like chord melt, you know, chord progressions and like more like just different song, song structure. And I was just thinking, oh, it's not going to work. You know, I've got like a pedal board with like 50 pedals on it, you know, like yeah. I'm heading monkey or something and they don't have any pedals. I'm like, how do you play music without pedals? Like for me, like that was everything was weird guitar noises because I looked up to like Wes and head monkey and like Mike Einzinger. Those were my guitar heroes. But they were just like, well, come to practice, you know plug that crazy pedal board in and just do those weird sounds that you do, but do it over top of the good Charlotte songs and see what it sounds like. And I was like, okay, let's try it. You know? So, um, 
I bring my big ass pedal board and just start doing like stuff with like a wah-wah pedal and phaser. And they all kind of started looking at each other like, this is super weird. Like we've never heard stuff like this in our songs before, but they were like, but it's like a new flavor that like not a lot of the other bands were doing. And they were like, that's kind of cool. And, and, and it's almost like if you've worn a blue shirt your whole life, the one day you put a red shirt on, you're like, whoa, this is crazy. You know, so like playing new metal forever. And then all of a sudden trying to play pop punk, it just felt so like new and different and refreshing. I was like, this is fun. It's like, it's like something new I haven't done. And right away it just clicked. And I was like, this feels good. Like I, I like this, you know? I also think that your music is, I, I think that the influence you might've brought to Good Charlotte is the music is slower than a lot of punk was. Yeah, sure. yeah. So I actually posted little things on my Twitter account and it pretty much was like, everyone was kind of like, yeah, yeah I when I saw it. that, I was like, okay, that's a stretch. But like, hey, it is. I think that might have been maybe when I first like reached out. Uh, because I had seen like a lot of people retweeting new metal um agenda like on Twitter. I'd pop up and every time I saw someone retweeting it, it would like make me smile. It would be like a moment or something where I'm like, oh, that was my shit back in the day. You know, like I love that. And then I for for a while I kind of thought like, oh, it's just like a joke account that's poking fun at new metal, you know? But then like the more posts I would see, I'm like, why don't I follow this account? Every time I see it on my timeline, it makes me smile. So I was like, you know, so so I started following you guys and um and then just, you know, for for a while I feel like you guys were posting less frequently, but then for a while you started posting like multiple times a day, right? And it was just like a, a flood of just new metal on my timeline. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And then all of a sudden I was like, little things is on there. Like, what what is good Charlotte doing? You know, and, and even one of the comments was like, hmm, this is a stretch, but okay, I'll accept it. And I was thinking like um, okay, cool. So like, I, I, I was stoked to see Good Charlotte pop on uh, on a new metal uh, account. I was like, hey, that's kind of cool. I'm trying to remember how it ended up there. I think I was browsing. I like to like push the 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 boundaries like of the definition of of new metal, and I think that a lot of stuff that interacts in in the same that breathe the same air as like the the real new metal bands. I like to get up there sometimes. Like if I posted the entire Young and Hopeless album, that would be that would just no, be like right. yeah, that wouldn't work. But where so the research that I was doing is because like TRL very important to to new metal MTV sure. and TRL right so you had Corn and you had Limp Bizkit just TRL mainstays and then what I th when I think of like bands that got the TRL boost after them it's like Good Charlotte and Avenged Sevenfold which feels like way too long of a timeline like there's got to be something I'm leaving out but I think you guys were one of the few to actually like play that game after like peak TRL sure. and, and get something out of that. And I was going through the Wikipedia page actually for the debut album and for Good Charlotte. And I noticed that Benji uh, had mentioned that they had, they wanted little things to be a single because it had a, a real appeal to high school kids, like something along that line. And I was like, I was like, oh man, songwriters don't usually put it like that. Usually it's like, man, I was really going through a lot and had to express myself in some way. It's not usually just like, kids are going to love this. This is going to be big. But I, but since I respect that approach so much, I was like, let I me think sometimes, you know, artists like dig for this really deep meaning because they think it sounds better. But I'm like, is that really the truth? But sometimes it probably is. But sometimes I'm like, man, it's not always that deep. You know, sometimes I'm like, it just felt good. So we rolled with it, you know, and that can be the answer sometimes, you know? Well, and I don't want to stress the commercial ambition thing too much. But what I really enjoy about, and, and I think resonates with that is that in 2000, that was like a it was like it was like really inappropriate to be that nakedly commercial and play rock music of some sort to play metal to play punk to play any of that whereas now that is the 
the absolute minimum that you have to do. Every kid now in a rock band of any kind has to be so ambitious and so nakedly commercial. Like yeah. everyone now is their own A&R. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like market testing and seeing what works on their own. It's like if you were a famous rock star in 1991, that was your job. You were a sure, famous but you, rock star. We didn't star. have SEO tools and stuff like that. Right. No, we didn't like that wasn't an option. We couldn't research. You'd go to the library and maybe read a book about like uh marketing and stuff like that. But the tools that they are now is crazy, you know, and it's it's crazy to sound so like dated and old back then, but like the internet was still kind of new you know what i mean like it wasn't like like it is now like it wasn't brand right. new but it was still kind of new when we were starting out yeah I think, and i think also to your point earlier about about knowing who your fan base was and and listening to what they want that that one line about like oh high school kids are gonna love that like yes it is nakedly ambitious but i think it's also showing kind of a respect for your fan base you know like i think Sure. There is there is a genuine what what I I was very into Good Charlotte as as a teenage girl. Um, well, thank you. But I something that I really found re-listening, um, preparing for this was that like there's a real respect for the the interiority and like the fact that teenagers are full human beings who are experiencing a lot of emotions. And I guess yes, it can sound juvenile, but also like these are real things that people are experiencing and I think being willing to say that that's who you're making music for allows you to kind of deepen deepen the audience experience deepen the art that you're making or the music that you're making absolutely I mean that's why the song hold on came you know on our second record because mm -hmm. so many people at the meet and greets on the first record were like I was suicidal or I was going through a lot of stuff you know and um you know I was going to take my own life and like I put your record on and I felt like, okay, you know, like this record gives me a little hope. Like a lot of those songs were about sort of like life used to suck and we fought through it and now life is getting better. You know what I mean? Like it's possible if you, if you make the right decisions and it happened so much that it was heavy, you know, like it's a lot, you know, to like go to the meet and greets and you're like, Hey, what's up guys, you know, good to meet you all. And you look over and like four of the people are just are, are crying, you know, and you're like, I thought this was exciting, but they're sad. You know what I mean? And like, it's their turn to come up and get the picture. And we're kind of like, hey, put a smile on your face. Like, nice to meet you. And they just, they don't want to smile. And they just like, they lay it all on you. They're like, I've been going through a hard time. You know, and that's not one day on the tour. That's every day of the tour. You know what I mean? And we're like, you know, I was like, I was in high school six months ago. And today, you know, like I'm, I'm sitting here like in freaking Nebraska, meeting like a handful of kids who are like, suicidal and telling me that we changed their life and like that's a lot to take on you know and um yeah and i'm not definitely. the lyricist so i think benji and joel had an even higher level of responsibility to think oh those were my words you know and um so so a lot of that you know is it's we started to think like okay well i know when when they wrote the like the lyrics for hold on it was specifically like hey we're we're replying to all of you with one song you know like it's like we can't necessarily reach all of you but if the music before like was helping you like this song is literally exactly saying like just hold on listen to the music it's okay things are gonna get better you know and and the music was written like you said like we catered to you can't pick your fans and i think a lot of people mess up with that like they get mad and they keep trying to change the sound and keep doing different things to attract the right people but you're so much more successful if you accept who your fans are and then make sure that you're like appreciating them and, and knowing who your fan base is. It's, it's just one of the things that I feel like a lot of young artists just don't get. And I'll tell you something else about that juvenile form of expression. If I know anything about adults now, 
as someone that's been interacting and uh, with their with their favorite bands from high school, it's that you actually still feel just like that. Like when you're like when you're like 13 and you're listening to music like Good Charlotte or Linkin Park, bands that are just like laying it out there like you're in pain and you're not alone. Like that's layer one. And then you grow up and get into more complicated music and like pile on layers of abstraction abstraction and stuff. And suddenly you're into like Miles Davis and Bob Dylan and stuff. And the truth is you actually still feel just like this all yeah. the way back down at layer one. And, and, and you're waiting. I think people are waiting for someone to come along and be like, that music was good. Cause it's funny how long I've been doing this and people still show up on my Twitter and be like, and be like, you know what? I like this song. I don't care who knows it. And I'm like, yeah, it's a great song. You yeah. don't have to qualify that. I've it's always felt like that way. You should never be ashamed of music you love. If you hear a song and you love it, like wave the flag, be like, I love this song. You know, like you, sh you should never be ashamed of liking anything, you know? And it's it's weird that, that new metal had such like a negative connotation. Like people are like, oh, new metal. And I'm like, oh. I hate you know what? because I love new metal. You know? This is going to be this is going to be interesting, actually, because I've, I've brought this up to multiple guests, but you're going to be the first one that was boots on the ground for the whole thing. Something that really fascinated me and has for the entirety of my new metal adventure was that like the, the way nostalgia works, like in a linear timeline is typically like when you get to the 20 year mark of a phenomenon, that's when yeah. it gets reevaluated. But that didn't happen for new metal. What happened was was emo got. The nostalgia revival instead but peak emo came after new metal did so it felt like the nostalgia thing went from grunge to emo and i remember thinking like that's fucking weird because it was like for all those intervening years it just kind of was like the sentiment was still like new metal sucks it always sucked and and emo and emo culture was like we'll take break stuff and in the end and bring me to life and we'll we'll leave the rest as scraps so i think that there's like this weird amount of like lost time to be made up because it's like not fair or not correct. Like there's a correcting of the record that I think has to go down where it's like, you know, like it's not all about emo night, guys. You missed out. We missed out. We missed the train. Is that something as someone that was is was is a part of the military emo industrial complex? Did you notice that? You know, I haven't really thought about it till you mentioned it that you're right. The new metal revival didn't quite hit the way like pop punk and emo are having such a revival right now. Like new metal didn't. I think like 10 years ago, people would have been like Limp Bizkit's headlining the festival. Like, are you serious? You know, like who cares about Limp Bizkit? Now Limp Bizkit's headlining the festival and people are like, hell yeah, Limp Bizkit's on the festival. Like, I love Limp Bizkit. Limp so, Bizkit could not play America for years because no. people would not show out. They said in an interview, I haven't seen the interview, so maybe I'm wrong, but they were like, we 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 only tour Europe because people in America. We, we would do festivals in Europe and Limp Bizkit would still be on it. I'm like, yo, like they're still crazy big over here. Like they never lost it. But in America, it was hard. They're um, playing theaters. Sure, right? theaters. And I think that's crazy. But nowadays, it's like everybody gives them love. So I do. I don't know that like the sound has come back around, but I think the respect for what that genre did has come back around. I think that it's a lot less people are like, oh, it was so corny and it was so cheesy. And now people go like, wait a second. Actually, they were just really good big songs, you know, like in. So there's also there, there's also a theory, but. millions and millions and millions of unactivated fans of these bands just everywhere because it's like it's like dog Limp Bizkit sold some bands entire career in their first week. Yeah. Like you think like like you think like the Black Parade or 
from under the cork tree are big albums chocolate starfish went diamond yeah no <laughs> if you add crazy. those two albums sales in america together it still does not amount to that not one even close record. yeah right you know like hybrid theory is like 15 platinum yeah and i always think about lincoln park it's crazy is they came late you know what i mean you're talking about if good charlotte would have been a 2000 band it came out i mean a new metal band in 2000 we wouldn't have hit because it would have been too late you know and i would have been like you're right however Lincoln Park was late to the scene, you know? They came out so, way later than all those bands, and they were still like that. Slipknot was late, too. You know, Slipknot and Lincoln Park were both no, a little late to the scene. I think Slipknot was right on time. Because okay. when Slipknot showed up in 99, Slipknot were the grind. Because I think of 97 as, like, the peak of new metal for me. You know, like, that's where I feel like maybe not its biggest, you know, but, like, when when the most influential bands, like, got their cut. You know, like, 96, 97. Like, so, yeah, so for me, 99 yeah. and 2000 almost felt like a second wave but i do see what you mean so slipknot was like just right in there but but keep going sorry because slipknot were like the grimy uh revenge of the underground to limp biscuits like shiny sure Mega right Platinum. yeah but totally we had i was three... kind of anti-slipknot at first i was like oh they wear masks they have numbers there's freaking nine of them and i was yeah. like this sound has so been done you know like i was not into it at first i was really like anti-slipknot and then i would like just be out at like a party with some friends and i hear a song i was like what is this and they're slipknot and i'm like damn this is really good you know and then finally like i went like way late to that first record i played it through and i was like oh well like i've been wasting time this is so good you know yeah. like so it took me a minute but you know uh, slipknot they're awesome for sure i guess the assert the assertion that you guys wouldn't have actually hit in 2000 okay maybe that's a little much yeah but you, i you... do what you mean i know what you mean though it was late for new metal it was so the thing about it, though, is we had three peak years where we were the only thing that mattered, which was 99, 2000, 2001. And, and nothing gets bigger or better in terms of a metaphor than than like Fred Durst shooting or Limp Bizkit shooting the video for Rolling on Top of the World Trade Center. For sure. That is the perfect year 2000 image you could possibly imagine. A building that wouldn't even be there a year later. It's amazing. But what the thing was, though, is that uh, Lincoln Park, Papa Roach and Crazy Town were the beginning of the end of new metal because these were the first three new metal bands to that felt like they just showed up out of nowhere and were huge immediately. And that triggered a lot of latent skepticism that was on hold from like the mid 90s, where you had people already suspicious of like Limp Bizkit and Corn who toured their asses off, worked like crazy to get anywhere. And then suddenly, like Lincoln Park or suddenly Papa Roach shows up in their triple platinum within a year like whoa like hold on like what the fuck and then suddenly it becomes like this teeny bopper thing and i really hate lumping crazy town in there with the rest of them but that's the way it was because then crazy town's at number one pop hit and they're on ozfest they have a pop number one pop hit and are on ozfest at the same time and then yeah, of how course did that go for them, that, what that tour. How, did, how did that tour go for them they're the so stupid dude they're so stupid. They should have dropped off Ozfest immediately and started a headlining tour. I have when I, I think new metal, like I don't ever think about Crazy Town. You know, like no that's, like I don't ever think about them in, in as part. Like when you say, it, I'm like, oh yeah, that was a huge song, but like I don't think about them as like one of the big new metal bands. You know, they wanted to be metal. They wanted that cred. That's why they stuck around on Ozfest because right. they're like because they're a similar band where they're like they were like all about the commercial credibility. I think. um Brett's Brett Mazer, no, the other guy in that band, his like dad owned a record, uh, a recording studio. Like they'd been, they'd been lifers, right? 
And so I think that they really understood that metal fans are the ones that'll stick around. They don't want like the poppy sure. flash in the pan success. So they're like, no, 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 we'll stay on OzFest. This is going to work out great. It didn't. <laughs> it, yeah. was, it was really bad. But that, but really though, the 2000 is the, is the, the last like big chance you had to be a big name and, and new metal after that, you know, you had, do you remember edema? Of course. There's not going to listen. There's not many new metal bands you're going to ring up. Like I, I promise you, like I am deep seated in the new metal world. Like that's all I care oh, about. Of course. I, I remember. Here we go. What a, what a fun piece of bait you've just put out. I know. Do we want to <laughs> test his gangster? How, well, how I'm sure you probably got a couple oh. where I'm like, because after 2000, there was a shift, you know, in the sound and the bands that got big. And I like, I don't ever like to talk shit or call out bands because all, every band out there is trying their hardest. And if every band sounded the same, how boring would that be? You know, like right. everyone has their own taste. But, you know, when when it shifted towards like Godsmack, Disturbed, Saliva and that like sound, like I kind of fell off the new metal train a little bit, you know? We all did. Okay. So like, you know, and, and those bands have some good riffs and they worked really, like I'm not, I don't hate them, but like I wasn't listening to them like I was bands prior to that so you know i'm trying to say you throw some bands at me in that genre i'm probably like yeah i don't know them but before that i probably i probably saw them in concert like i saw at a little tiny club with like a 500 seater limp biscuit headline incubus was main support uh cold went on before them and stained opened the show at like a show for maybe 400 people four that's or five hundred at the most that is that's actually pretty nuts it was awesome so, and i'll tell you what so you were just talking oh i'm good i'm so good i you were just talking about how like Things were shifting in that Godsmacky direction. So year, uh, the week ending February twenty second, two thousand and three. You guys show up on the Billboard Modern Rock tracks, right? You guys are uh, at number thirty nine with a bullet with the uh, lifestyles of the rich and the famous, and you guys are sharing elbow room here with Straight Out of Line by Godsmack, Remember by Disturbed, Headstrong by Trapped. Like, oh. like this is, but see what I mean here? This is the, this is the moment where two things are For diverging. Sure, right. Something yeah. is like changing. And I'll tell you what else though, is cause I'm, a, I'm, I'm a billboard junkie. Like I yeah. live to read and met, like memorize all these charts, even when bands like the used in AFI started making that big impact bands like Godsmacked and disturbed never left these charts. They still like, kind of don't. They, they they don't you know like when disturb puts out a song it's probably going to hit on active rock still yes so even though you think of new metal like new metal and post grunge like falling out of favor in middle america not really yeah, you, you have kind to of, still remember every dive bar strip club casino all right. day every day right middle so, america is like different you know i mean i because i heard you say in the lejean interview i listened to it this morning i was trying to just kind of listen to one of the recent ones and get a vibe for you know what kind of questions you were gonna <laughs> you were gonna ask me and you mentioned that you lived in la you know and i was like okay so it's like it's funny when you live in like major cities like you don't see 90 percent of the rest of america you know like what 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 what's going on in those you know middle american cities and a lot of that music is still big yeah and i think that even now even like knee ankle wrist neck deep i am in this research i still can't really know what it's like to grow up as a music fan in like rural michigan yeah I, i'm still like just trying to like figure out like did you grow up in la or where are you from i grew up in illinois okay i grew up in illinois so very big into uh do you guys ever do like anything for q101 of course of course of course q101 or 94.7 yeah q101 would, was a big supporter would have been our big i was q101 a big deal like in yes. general yeah. really 
Like, because everyone, obviously, everyone's K Rock, K Rock, K Rock. But was was maybe yeah, but when you, when you look at it in America, like I always think you have New York, you have Texas, you have LA, and you have Chicago. That's kind of like the way you like can look at. And then there's everything in the middle. So like, like Chicago, yeah. So Q One One was definitely a big deal. Yeah. So it's it's just fascinating to me because it's like '99, like it was right there, the peak of the roller coaster, and then '01, you're looking down the hill you're you're still like up partying up top but it's coming down so when good charlotte made that call to go for the pop punk route that was like that was just it was like a perfect right on time decision to make there's and that's a huge part of all the music industry is timing you could be the best band in the world at the wrong time and it doesn't matter you know what i mean yeah. you could be a minimally talented band but you have like the right thing that you're talking about at the right time it hit like so much of the music industry is timing because I'm looking here at HFS Festival, the lineup for HFS Festival 2000. Was this the yeah. first time you played HFS Festival? We did like the local stage in 99, you know, because that's where we grew up. Maryland is where Good Charlotte grew up. Like that, that's like our, our the festival we had been going to our whole life, you know. So, yeah, in 99, there was like a, in fact, when they did it in 99, I wasn't even in the band yet. I was like in the audience, like watching Good Charlotte on the local stage. Right. And what I think is impressive here is you guys don't really sound like any other band that played HFS 2000. So you're you're like sandwiched in here between like Godsmack, Filter, Deftones. And then on the other side of things, you got Nine Days, uh, Third Eye Blind, Vertical Horizon. But that's the bands we thought that we were going to be like. Like, that's why the, the weird thing is like. Those were some of the big radio bands at the time, and those were the kind of bands that the huge, record label, huge. you know, Vertical was Horizon like, was just at number one. Yeah, and that's who the the record labels were comparing us with. They were like, "Oh, we should get them out on 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 tour with Matchbox Twenty or Vertical Horizon." You know, like that's who they wanted us to go on tour with, because you had Blink and you had Green Day, and that was it. There wasn't any other pop punk bands. I guess the Offspring, kind of, you know. But aside from those bands, there wasn't a ton like major label big hit pop punk bands. It wasn't really like a label that band like they couldn't put you in that genre yet because it wasn't a genre that made money so we were just like thought we would be an alternative rock band you know and then yeah i think i think offspring were somewhat of like an alternative rock style phenomenon because they yeah, had I a little bit about of that like pop punk until later in life when i looked back on it they had a little bit of that goofball energy to them and uh you i would more of i would have gravitated toward like rancid because i think rancid were one of those bands that were tipped to be Huge. Sure, Rancid had some big songs too. That's true. Rancid, Bad Religion, they both had like some hits. And those bands like and, and the thing is like each one of us in the band comes from like a very different musical background. Benji like loved Rancid. Like he free that was like one of his favorite, favorite bands, you know? And um so sure, that that there was definitely that influence, a thousand percent. And then I think you guys I don't I won't I don't want to project too much, but the way I've always thought of it as just a general music fan is that you guys Look to make another pivot with a sea change coming on, and then with um, with the Chronicles of Life and Death. And you've got to correct me if I'm wrong. Did you guys think to yourselves like, okay, emo now? We gotta no, just darker, more serious. Which which because Six emo was not a, there was the no emo at that point. Emo wasn't a thing, you know. Like we couldn't say like let's be emo because that wasn't even a term at that point. Really? You know, like can I throw out my insane hypothesis? For sure. Which is that like in in this era of music, like right at this transition moment, not not Midwest emo, setting that aside, but that like in this moment, pop punk is music that boys like, and then emo is music that girls like. And that is kind of 
a key part of this divide. That is how it felt. Interesting. Maybe that's how it that felt. That's, yeah. That I think that bands that sounded very similar and were in kind of similar spaces. Like if girls liked it, oh, they were emo. And if boys liked it, like, well, I think for like a, a, so a tag for people that makes sense. I don't know that I ever thought of it that way. Like from for me, you know, like I felt like our wave was pop punk. And then I think who came after us? Okay, the next wave after us was Fall Out Boy, My Chem, Panic, The Disco, and Paramore. Those were like the four bands who came in the next wave after us who kind of like dethroned us on TRL. And for me, like that was when Emo started. So for me, that was maybe just after... Um, or at least the term emo, you know, like the sound was there maybe, but I don't know that. So no, I, I don't, I mean, for me, it was like, when we went in to make that record, it's like when, when you get kept getting questioned, like, you know, getting your punkness questioned all the time. Like, you know, people would ask us in, like I said, in interviews and they'd want to know, like, they'd want those clout answers. And I was thinking like, I'm not punk. I don't want people to think I'm punk because that's just not who I am, you know? So like, I kind of went like, extra heavy on like the goth route you know i was always like tons of like eyeliner and black nail polish and like i you know nine inch nails is like a huge huge band for me um i loved like cold chamber i always thought like meeks from cold chamber was like the coolest looking dude in rock and like that was like my look was and i kind of wanted to like go overboard on it so that there was like no question like okay he's not the punk rock guy don't ask him punk because look at him he's obviously not a punk rocker and so like you know i really love like danny elfman too like i'm i've been always obsessed with tim burton and danny elfman like I'll, half of my whole arm is like tattooed and stuff like that um i loved stuff like muse at the time because muse sort of had that danny elfman sound with the pianos and all the theatrics and we went in to make chronicles of the life and death i thought like how can i bring an influence of like danny elfman and muse and stuff like that into pop punk like so as a guitar player i like i started playing piano and keys on that record for the first time so that was for me you know like how, how can i bring those sounds into pop punk and if you listen to it there's a lot of those really sad minor changes in these like sort of big sweeping reverb like guitar sounds that have all these little like half step like sad minor changes in it that you would hear and stuff like Muse and Danny Elfman. So no, I wasn't thinking emo. I was thinking like big theater, like theatrical, like super over the top, like goth, sad, you know, pop punk. And I guess when you think what what's sad goth pop punk? Oh, that's emo. You know what I mean? Like it is. It just wasn't really like a thing or a term yet. So it was really just a matter of like good timing. Th th this wasn't like a good, conscious. Of course, yeah, no, yeah. There was nothing conscious about this. It was just like you were following your muse and it happened to be right on time. Yeah, you're right. We, you know, just making the record that we thought we needed to make. Now, let me ask you this, because now you've got another thing in con, uh, in 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 uh, common with Limp Bizkit, although it wasn't a scandal when they did it. Do you remember anything about I Just Want to Live getting swept up in the payola scandal? Kind of um, like, yeah, I mean. So for context but, for the listener, I got to do this. I'd never yeah. do this. Sony BMG uh, paid some record labels in really like obviously corrupt ways like flying them out to miami and paying people to call in and request songs and stuff like that uh and got caught had to apologize had to donate to a charity it was a big deal it was a deal i don't know if it was a big deal uh but uh i just want to live by good charlotte it was one of the songs that sony was trying to was doing pay to play for and i and guess the, thing the good is thing like is though is that you guys got to be like we didn't because we didn't know like we yeah. it's like nobody knew but everybody knew like everybody did it sony just got caught you know that's a different like at that time like everybody was doing this it would be things like you know radio stations would be like hey we have like our big 
Christmas show coming up or something like that. And we know that you've got this really big band on your label. Like we want that big band to play our Christmas festival. And they're like, well, then you got to start playing the smaller band we have on our label more if you want the bigger band. Like that's the kind of bargaining that record labels were doing because they had so much power back then. Um, so I, I do think that that's it, like, a little different than being like, we're going to wire you 10 grand. Sure, yeah, exactly. And like the way they the, the band sees it is like that. Oh, they're just bargaining like, oh, it's a package deal. If this band gets on the show, then this band gets on the show too. And you're like, okay, like that's that's why we're with a big label because they have those bargaining chips you know and then that article comes out and we're like oh shit it's way way more than that is going on like i had no idea that kind of stuff was happening um and who knows there's a chance that stuff still happens you know and it's just but, but yeah of course it sucked to be a part of it but honestly i felt like that came and went so fast i kind of forgot it even happened okay i i think i i think i'm always just interested in like the money ball aspect of record label politics of course but it's definitely if one that of those was things. happening now. It would be for like food. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. We'll buy you. We will give you Getting a Getting posted to an Instagram party. story. Yeah, exactly. I do think, but Billy, I do think that's a better response than you being like, all right, so I may have made some calls. Yeah. No, I was no, somewhat no. involved in that. Yes. <laughs> totally, totally naive to it. So just to, just to wrap up the decade though, on Good Morning Revival, that was like a conscious pivot or it was at least Rob Cavallo's conscious pivot. Don Gilmore, fuck. Don Gilmore, yeah. I knew I was about to get that wrong. It's all right. It's Don Gilmore's conscious pivot of being like, this shit is not going to fly anymore. And it's another one of those things I like because you guys did actually pull off a third act coup because a lot of bands did not adapt to changing tides in rock music. And by changing tides, I mean the tides receding yeah. <laughs> out into the ocean of 2007, 8, 9, because those were dark periods for those rock bands. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, how did that conscious decision come about? I mean, we always said, like, we're never going to make the same record twice because what's the fun in that, you know? You, you know, like, as much as your fans don't want you to change, they're also going to be really bored if you make the same record. So when it came on to that, again, it's just like what we were listening to and what we were excited about. It was always like, let's go in and make the record that makes us excited. And... um you know, like I, I had started playing piano on the last record and from piano, like it went to a lot more like keys and synthesizers. And that was exciting. Like when we went into the studio, I was more excited about playing with a keyboard than I was with a guitar. Like that was just exciting. Um, so yeah, I did I think, read you know, that you drove the sound of that record quite a bit with I mean, by like kind of switching off. Yes and no, you know, like I've always I have like a weird role in the band because I'm not the main songwriter, you know, like I'm in a band with two like incredibly gifted songwriters, like what Benji and Joel can do as songwriters is just insane the way they can like, they're twins and they can read each other's minds and they're like, one will just know where the song is going. And like, when they start to harmonize, it's crazy because it's not like one guy has this voice and the other guy has a shrill voice and they kind of no, they have the same voice. So it's like, it's almost like you can duplicate your voice into like, it's really crazy to be in the studio with them. So like, I try to step back when I'm seeing magical things like that happen and just like let the songs come out. But then I think like, I feel like it's sort of like a color by number where they're like, Hey, here's this beautiful song, you know, that's, but there just doesn't have any colors on it yet. Like, how should we color this song? And then I think, okay, like, do I want to add a piano right here? Do I want to add keyboards right here? Do I want to do a lead guitar? Do I want to do acoustic guitar? Like, so I could get to go in and kind of like, you know, sprinkle around and pepper like more of the vibe of the song rather than actual song itself. So yeah, you know, like, it's cool when people will say things like I've had people say Chronicles, like, I don't know that it would have sounded like that had you not go so heavy with your sort of like dramatic kind of like goth influence on it. Like it's all over the record and the next record. There's a ton of keys and programming and stuff like 
did you do a lot of that? I'm like, well, yeah, that's what I was into at the time. So it's it's fun to think that although I'm not the main songwriter, like I, I was able to bring something to each record that sort of maybe steered a little bit stylistically where we were going. Yeah. Did they find you, grandfather? Was that from, was that Cyrus from you? After. Yeah. Start driving, dude. I would love that if you just got in the, the high speed chase. It's going by. <laughs> high speed chase. I'm, I'm parked at a CVS. I'm not mobile. Um, okay, you're safe. Hey, you know what, grandfather? Yeah. You were you're a contemporary music fan. Did what you guys? What do you think of Good Charlotte? I fucking loved Good Charlotte. I I had I wore the anthem and Lifestyles of the Rich of the Famous out on my 512 megabyte MP3 player. Appreciate that. I actually I saw you guys at that first Warp tour. Uh, it was an 01 or 02. It was the year Cool Keith played. Yeah, oh, I think 2001. We didn't do it. 2000, 2001 was our first one, yeah. Okay, so it was Alien Ant Farm 311. Yep. I think Rancid played that year, AFI. Definitely, that was the yeah, one you guys, for sure. You guys did not play for long. I remember that. Nobody gets to play for long. You only get, everybody right, gets 30 It's at like 2.30 in the afternoon <laughs> in a hot-ass parking lot in Timley yes. Park, Illinois. Okay, nice. Yeah, that was right when Little Things was starting to get a bunch of exposure in the Chicagoland area. Yeah. So I thought you guys were good. You sounded incredibly tight. And now that I know that you were on tour for three straight years, that makes sense. It better pay off. <laughs> so did you get to check out any other bands during that of time? Of course. I mean, we were out the whole time. Like, I mean, Alien Ant Farm was probably the band I watched the most because they were the most new metal band on the Warp Tour. You know, like I, I felt like a total like uh, fish out of water on Warp Tour. And like we roll up and Benji's just like, yo, there's Lars from Rancid. And he's just like, he's off. Like I got it. He's, he's like, these are all my heroes. And I'm like, none of my heroes are on this story. You know, like any <laughs> band, we, we should have done all funny. Us. Like as successful as we've got to be, like I've never really toured with my heroes. Like I've never really like, it's almost like a lot of my heroes are still this like enigma thing that like is, is untouchable which is kind of nice like a lot of people say don't meet your heroes because it gets ruined you know and i've got to you know like i've met um jonathan davis a couple times and he was super nice to me i've met fred durst a ton of times super nice to me um a lot of the, those guys head and monkey west like and of course i go up right away and i'm just gushing like you know hey i know i'm in good charlotte and you wouldn't guess it but like you guys are my heroes and they're like no way you know and I've got a couple other stories that, that I had in my head that I was like, I have to remember to tell these stories. So, so don't let me forget because there's some good new metal stories that I have to drop on you. But, um, you know, like, I'll tell you what, though, I think tour. it's I think it's really funny to imagine Joel and Benji having to like, like, you guys aren't real punk and then being like, no, we love all these punk bands like Rancid and stuff. And you're just somewhere in the back, like being like, I don't <laughs> I, I don't like those bands. even. <laughs> like, honestly, like the first couple of Good Charlotte shows, I had dreadlocks. And when we signed to Sony, the record label was like can you please get rid of the dreadlocks? And I'm like, no, this is my thing. And they're like, that was a good aged at, move. And, and they're, they're just, looking at Blink-182 and they're like bright yellow Hurley hats and like this. And they were like, you know, you, you just can't have dreadlocks, you know? So like literally like right before the photo shoot of the first time, I've got like short spiky hair with like bleached tips. And that was like a week before we shot the little things video. Like I cut my dreadlocks off. I had dreadlocks all the way up until that point, you know? And then all of a sudden it was like, surprise, you're pop punk now. Sliding doors, butterfly effect moment. You had dreadlocks in that video and the band goes nowhere. Yeah, right. Exactly. The label had been like, <laughs> epic, see, you know, epic, see, epic sees the video and they're like, he's got the fucking dreadlock. Drop him. Yep. Drop him Done. off the label. And then you go as pivot to new metal. Better world. Uh, yeah. So, but we, I do want to hear a few of these stories you said you got going over there. Yeah. Is it a good time for that? Okay. Hit so me. like uh, another one of the shows that I thought was really cool. I went to see in Baltimore at this venue. Uh, it was another small venue. Um, Incubus on the science tour, right? Incubus is headlining. Um, System of a Down is opening. 
And then before Jeez. that was a band called Dial 7. There's a small 7. moment in time. I don't know if you remember Dial 7. No. You don't know Dial 7? Okay, you got to oh. check out. So they were also on Immortal Records. You remember Immortal was like, you know, like Corn, uh, Incubus, uh, Dial 7, I think Urge Overkill, a couple other bands. Look at this. Um, I just got my card pulled, y'all. Oh, yes. Hell yeah. So either way, so Dial 7, System of a Down, and Incubus. And I'm like so excited to go see because I'm all about like Incubus um, and System's first record. So I get to the concert and me and two of my buddies are there and we pull up and we go up to like buy the ticket. And the guy's like, can we see IDs? And we're like, oh, we're in high school. And he was like, oh, dude, this show's 18 and up. And we're like, no, you know, because I'm like 15 or 16 at the time. And he's like, yeah, sorry, you guys can't get in. And I'm like, just gutted because I've been waiting like all month for this concert. So me and my friend, like we kind of walk around the corner and we're like, oh, this sucks. And we're like, oh, look, there's like some RV parked over, not even a tour bus, but an RV. And we're like, I wonder if one of the bands is in the RV. So we kind of like cruise over and then Darren and Chavo pop out of the RV. You know, and we're like, yo, system of a down. And we're like going so crazy. And they were like, you know who we are? And we're like, hell yeah. And they were like, oh, everybody's here for Incubus. Like nobody knows who we are. And I was like, oh, I love your record. And they thought it was so cool. I mean, they were like a brand new band, like one of their first tours. And they were so excited that we knew. And they were like, you guys want to come in the RV and hang out? And we're like, hell yeah. You know, uh -huh. and they're like, come on in. So, so me and my friend are just like sitting in Systems RV and just chilling. They're like, so how have you heard of our band or how do you know about us? And I was like, oh, I got like a free sampler or something that had one of your songs on it. And they're like, oh, yeah, cool. And so we're talking and they were like, so uh, we're going on soon. You guys coming in? And we're like, we can't go in. Like, what do you mean? And I was like, we're not old enough. And they were like, oh, fuck that. You guys are getting in the show. Like, so here's what's going to happen. We're going to walk in the back door right now. We're getting ready to go on. You're going to just sandwich in between us. And, the, and, our and we're just going to be like, they're with us. They're with us, right? And as soon as we get in, look to the right. And there's some staircase. You guys got to book it up the staircase to get into the main floor. And we're like, okay. So we go in and like, me and my friend are just like sandwiched between Chavo and Darren. And we walk and they show their laminates. Like, where are these guys' laminates? Like, no, they're good. They're with us. And they're like, no, 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 where's their laminates? And they were just like, go, go, go. And they took it. And we just like ran up the steps and like busted our way into the audience and just got right in the pit. And we're like, no one's going to find us. And so we saw System. We saw Incubus. We saw the whole show. We got to hang out and everything. And, and I was thinking, like, oh, what a cool moment that was. And then, you know, 20 years later, we're doing like, some big like fest like rock and ring in in germany or something and system of a down is on the show and i was like i gotta find these guys and tell them the story you know so i'm looking all day and then i saw chavo and i found him I was like you know chavo what's up you know i, I play in good charlotte we've you know we've never met but we kind of have and i told him the story and he was just like bro you're blowing my mind he was like if you would have told me like that little kid you know like was gonna be in good charlotte this many years later and and he was kind of saying like, oh man, like Darren is on this like super musical trip right now where he was like in a dressing room, like he had like his own dressing room, like just, you know, Darren is like a weird dude, obviously. But they were like, if you told what him What year was this? I don't know. I want to say like 2005 or something, maybe. Okay. You know, after Good Shot, we, we were like a big band at that point. You know, we were also one of the, you know, main stage. We might've played like right before System or something like that, right? Um, yeah. And he was just like, dude, if you told Darren the story right now, I think his brain would literally explode to the point where he'd be like, I can't play tonight. You know, he was like, he wouldn't be able to comprehend this story. So I just thought it was really cool that I got to go back that many years later and, you know, okay, maybe not 20 years, maybe 10 years later or something like that and tell him that story. And, and uh, it was a pretty cool moment because he thought that was like, dude, that's a cool story. Thank you for that sharing is, that. That's legit blessed. Speaking of blessed, I, now I'm like, I'm dying to ask this question. Is this a platinum plaque for Future Sex Love Sounds by Justin Timberlake behind you? Oh, yes, yes, because we we uh, we toured with him. We were his main support on that tour of his U.S. Part what? Of the tour. Yes, that was during Good Morning Revival, which was oh, a big part of Revival. why 
why Dance Floor Anthem was such a big hit on pop because we were out on tour with Justin Timberlake. That's crazy. I had yeah. never would have guessed that. And then you it, stole it, one of his plaques. Yeah, he gave uh, after the tour was over as a thank you. He sent all of us a, a plaque. He was like, you know, I, I uh, you know, think that opening acts are a big part of bringing new fans in. And I like to say thank you. So we all got like a, a I think it's like triple platinum or something that we all got sent to us after the tour. That's nuts. So it was, was cool. He, and he like... just wanted something different. He was like, I, the label makes me take the same shit every tour. And I just want something different. And we had a mutual friend. So when NSYNC came through washington dc on tour back in the day they all wanted to get tattoos and there's like a really prestigious shop in dc that like everybody would get their t their tattoos from you know and, and we grew up in maryland so like we knew the shop in dc and we had got a lot of our tattoos there too so someone from the venue was like yo nsync wants to get tattooed so they brought all the guys to this tattoo shop and they all got tattoos um it was called jinx proof that's the name of the shop in dc and one of the tattoo artists they were just like um Oh, we love this guy. He's really cool. And they're like, bro, come on tour with us so we can have a tattoo artist with us on tour. So the tattoo artist, um, his name was Frankie Orange. I've, I've known him for, you know, a, a lot of my life. They they took him out on tour and they kind of just were like, yo, we'll make up a job like your your dressing room guy. Your job is to go and just make sure everything that's supposed to be in the dressing room is set up. And like he didn't even set it up. Just make sure it was all there. Pretty much just hang out with us and tattoo us, you know. And so he's just one of our buddies back from Maryland. And we ended up bringing him out as like a tour manager for Good Charlotte for a while. So we had this connection with NSYNC. So like we would go do like the MTV awards and they'd be like, yo, Frankie. And like he'd, he'd, he'd kind of connect us. So we got to know NSYNC through him because we just had this mutual connection. So you'll see like Chris Kirkpatrick is in the Lifestyles of Rich and Famous video. Oh, yeah. Because he, you know, we just knew him through that. And then we just knew Justin, you know, also through the same tattoo artist. So then when it came down to do the tour, he reached out and they're like, hey, Justin wants to know if Good Charlotte would be his like main support on the U.S. run of the tour. And we were like, are you kidding me? Like arenas, no. you know, like two nights. So uh, we're used to doing like six days a week with one day off. It's like a show, three days off, a show, three days off. And we're like, this is great, you know. So, yeah, so we did that. And it was right around the same time we were going to pop radio with I Don't Want to Be in Love, you know, which was great timing because we could do all the pop radio press when they were coming out to cover the Justin Timberlake show. So, again, timing you know the timing of that a, was just really it's also good also a fit that makes perfect sense when you just take a second and think about it because yeah. you guys really did put the pop and pop punk like yeah strong hooks focused band so i think that leading going into justin timberlake though to have you guys there to put a little edge on it beforehand i'm sure the mar and i'm sure the pits were crazy yeah, no pits, but <laughs> murder and mayhem. It was it was a, a circular stage, so we were in the round. The crowds was three hundred and sixty degrees around us. So going into the next era of Good Charlotte, so we leave the two thousands, and now rock is in an extremely different place. You get cardiology, Youth Authority, Generation uh, RX. So that's 2010, 16, 18. Now you guys are in a funny spot where you're like elder statesmen of pop punk. How did you feel like the legacy, your legacy get like, how did, how did it, how did you watch it change over that 10 years? Well, it's funny because that like, for me, like the chapter ends after cardiology, you know, for us where, where there was a big shift <coughs> and cardiology was, um, a, a real struggle for us. Um, so we actually went, met with a couple of different producers. We met with Rob Cavallo, like you mentioned, um, so we thought about maybe doing the record with Rob. Then we met with Howard Benson, who had done a lot of big records. And we actually thought, okay, like, let's try Howard Benson. You know, he's done a lot of records we really love. Um, so we started cardiology with Howard Benson. 
and we were about two weeks into it and it was like just a miserable experience for us we were just hating it it was not fun like we were having like interband issues that we had never had in the studio before um the whole experience was just like almost tearing us apart it was just not you know and not really to say i still like respect howard as a producer because i think he's really great at what he does but the method in which he likes to do records was not how we were used to doing them and it was really you frustrating also just switched labels right true we had switched labels too that's correct and managers as well Mm, I guess that that can be trouble, right? A I mean, lot, a lot of changes were happening right there. It was sort of like, okay, everything's weird. The, the record industry is weird. Rock music is weird. Like, what's happening? Like, we got to make some shifts. So, new manager, new label. Because um, you guys must new, have had a good relationship with Epic. Like, they believed in you. Took a oh, chance. absolutely. Then all the people who believed in us just like weren't there anymore. You know, like we were just like, oh, it always it's all happens. new people. It's not the same anymore. You know, it always happens. It's there always was a like good handful of people who really went to bat for us and were with us through everything. You know, like the some of the MTV people, the radio department, both of those people like um, had some really really good people. Doug McVeal was like our radio, our MTV guy, and Jacqueline Saturn was like our uh, our radio person those are two people i think of that we saw all the time that you still see their names around you know who do well good but yeah no epic records is great but so we went in to do cardiology um i had just got married and had my first kid uh, same with joel just got married had his first kid our bass player had got married had his first kid so like um all of us were sort of starting families and benji was like single and he was like let's go make a new record i'm ready to go and we're like dude none of us want to work right now like we all have babies and stuff and so it was, and I don't blame him. You know, he was like, I'm hungry. Like I've, I've got these songs I want to work. And, and we were kind of like, okay, okay, let's, let's, let's make a record. You know, so it was almost like, you know, Benji's heart was in it deep. And the rest of us were like, kind of trying to juggle being new dads and making a record. And the way Howard wanted to make the record was really frustrating. And the whole thing was just like, I don't want to be at the studio. I want to be home with my wife and, and baby, because this is miserable at the studio. And this record, this, this is just not going well. And so I remember finally, like Benji sent me a text and goes, hey, am I crazy to think that we should just squash this and start over? And I was like, oh, my God, thank you. Like, this is the best text I've ever received. Like, I really needed this because I'm miserable right now. And he was like, I think we all are. So, you know, we went back to Don Gilmore, who we had already done two records with and just like, listen, you know, we already spent a bunch. We already blown half the budget <laughs> with Howard, you know, like, can you just do this record? Because we, we need to do it with someone we love. And Don is like like the best human you know like he's just so positive and just a so talented great to be around we just had a really great relationship with don and he was like yeah of course you know like yeah i'll do the record so we went in to do cardiology and we needed to do it kind of fast because we'd already spent a lot of time um so i have to give benji credit i feel like benji put that whole record on his back and that's really sort of like he i feel i look at that as like benji's <coughs> sorry guys like love letter like to music you know so um i don't feel as connected to that record because i i feel like i i phoned it in a little bit i'd kind of show up in the studio and do what i needed to do but everything up into that i felt like was a really cohesive experience where we poured our hearts into it and it, even now like we don't play many songs from cardiology live i don't think we play any of them live um really a lot of a lot of them were, were just like we, we need a single the, the new record labels like where's the hit we need the single we need the single so songs like like it's a birthday sex on the radio i look back at the songs now and, and we're just kind of like Oof, you know like i don't i don't really want to play those songs um so that was weird and then as you saw between 2010 and 2016 we didn't make a record for six years in between because that's when we decided maybe good charlotte should go on a hiatus maybe we need to like take a break and like just do family for a little bit because our hearts are just not 
not in it right now. And and that was like a big sort of like moment for us was between those records. Yeah, because cardiology to youth authority, that's your biggest gap by far. Yes. Okay. That was the first time we took a break. Up through cardiology, we were like just worked nonstop, you know? And then after cardiology, everybody was like, I'm burnt. We got to take a break now or this is, is going to end forever. Capital just severed it right away after that. What? So you you went epic capital and then solo, uh, uh, independent, independent, right? right yes. Okay. After we, you know, and in that time when we we took those couple years off, we were like, okay, so we thought it was going to be a six month break, you know, and it turned out to be years. You know, we didn't plan for it to be a long hiatus. We just thought, hey, let's just go home, and we got really used to being at home. Benji and Joel started MDDN, their um, management company, which you know they do really well with now. Um, I started focusing on like producing. I was like, I'm going to get in the studio and work with other artists. I want to, you know, write and, and produce with other people and just do music that's not Good Charlotte. And Paul, our bass player, he went back to college. He was like, I'm going to go, you know, figure things. So we all kind of just were like going to figuring out different things. And then when we decided to get back together to do Good Charlotte again, like the twins were so savvy with the industry because they knew how to manage they knew labels they had connections they're like we don't need a record label anymore like we know how to do all of this by ourselves like um we we could do this and i was like okay that's exciting and like as far as like demoing and stuff in the studio i was like i'm like super comfortable in the studio like i i, I feel like way more like faster and excited about being in the studio because that's all i've been doing for a couple of years so we just came in with like all this like we don't need the help anymore like we've been doing this for 20 plus years like we know how to do the music thing they know how to run the business thing like we can do this all by ourselves now and have no one else coming in and telling us what to do or what we need to do and so it was a, a nice gap um a long gap but like really necessary to sort of like figure out like what's the future for good Charlotte look like then from uh 2010 to 2018 oh and by the way since you're back on actually Riv you said you were a huge fan of good Charlotte I do not want to like trample on you and I want to give you a second of course too please no, it's, all, it's all good I am having fun listening to you too Riff also people keep walking into my shop um sorry about that for your editing times all good um yeah um oh man i like had a thought and the thought is gone circle back to me Kirk. okay we're still I'll here get there. Okay. um so 2016 2018 is like when you hit the emo revival by that point certainly by 2018 was like it was this big 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 fucking deal it's it's like in 2018 i think i went to something called emo night day and it was this like almost festival sort of thing dedicated to emo nostalgia and uh I think something that happened and why I think that the emo revival fell short in terms of its potential. And this is really sad. I'm sorry, but Lil Peep and Juice World, who were probably like its two biggest, yeah. brightest stars, the ones that were going to push the sound forward passed away. Thousand percent. And I think that when that happened, emo lapsed backwards into total nostalgia and things sort of fell apart from there. You guys had a relationship with Lil Peep, right? yeah not me personally i never got to meet peep however right before he passed he went actually into the mddn offices to meet with benji and joel and you know he he told them that good charlotte was his favorite band he was like growing up he was like good charlotte was my favorite band he was kind of like like my style everything all that stuff he was like nowhere was there like 
pop punk bands with like chains and Fendi on and also wear an eyeliner. He was like, you know, like all the kind of things that you saw the the emo kid, the emo rappers doing, they were kind of like, that's all the shit Good Charlotte used to do. And so it was cool to get the props like that from him. And so we were going to do a tour. We were going to do a Good Charlotte Little Peep tour. That's what we were going to plan. Um, and, you know, the guys were telling me about it and I was like, oh, that's exciting. Like, I, I think that's cool. Like, that's so different. We've never toured with someone like that. And, you know, I was excited about it. And then, you know, we were out on tour in Europe and um, we heard that he was passing, you know, and we were just kind of like crushed. We were like, oh, my God, this, you know, what awful timing, you know, he was such a, a sweet kid and he was doing so well and it was really sad. And um, so his funeral was coming up and, you know, his mom reached out and was was like, you know, is there any chance you guys could, you know, do like do, do come to the funeral, or do something for it? like, well, we're in the middle of a tour, but we're going to go in the studio and do a cover. We're going to record a song, you know, for him. And we're actually going to then like record us playing it live so that we could have him play it. She was like, it would mean a lot to him to play it at the, at the funeral. So we went and did like an awful things cover and then did that. We literally did that like for peep and for that moment, just, just, although he's not going to know, we like kind of knew like we're thinking how much that would mean to him or something like that. So, so there's definitely a connection there. Um, But unfortunately it was just too short and, you know, just, you know, it was, it was, it's in its historical moment. It was a collision of two things at the same time, which was SoundCloud rap culture and then the emo revival. And the SoundCloud rap culture involved a lot of like recreational drug use. It was a yes. big part of it. A huge and, part of the scene. And unfortunately, when those two met, you know, you, you, you know where it goes from there. But I, I know that I, and you have had a lot of experience touring with labels and stuff and in the lawsuit that Lil Peep's mother filed against his management company, she accused them of basically being drug dealers for Lil Peep while he was on tour, published all these like emails and text exchanges. And like, obviously they have their defense. But when I read through all that, I remember thinking like, yeah, they were, they were shuttling him, whatever he asked for just to keep him going through the tour. Um, Did you, I mean, as someone that's just been in the industry, as long as you are, do you have any take on that part of things? I mean, yeah, it definitely happens, Um, especially when, you know, guys, you know, like I I, I don't try not to sell anybody's stories out or, you know, and and I also like to be conscious of the fact that, you know, we are all dads and I know there's other families that that our kids go to school with and their parents are going to listen to stuff like this. So, you know, I, I try to be respectful about these stories, but yeah, you know, there's definitely cases where you fly to like Germany and guys who are like smoking weed every day are like, Oh, I can't fly with my weed. And you get there. First thing they land is they go to the record label guy. Hey, where can I like, I need, I need weed, you know? And it happens. They're like, they'll find it. And that's just weed. You know what I mean? So like, imagine when someone has like a really bad habit, you know, and they get somewhere and they're just like, ah, like I need this, you know? And the first person you go to is I go to the lab and what the label is going to be like, no. And they're going to like, cool. Well then I'm not playing tonight. And they're going to go, shit, I got to make it happen. So like, sure. Do, do, it's a tough place because like does are the label providing it yeah and that sucks because sometimes you should be like this guy is in bad shape we cannot give him this you know what i mean someone's got to yeah, look out for him someone's got to make that call but they also think but if i don't i probably lose my job right. um so what do i do and i think the biggest thing is who you surround yourself with you know like a lot of these people are like i'm gonna go on tour and like it's gonna be a party so i'm gonna bring like my five best bros on tour with me and we're just gonna like party and hang out like a lot of these people just have hanger honors who are just out on tour and they're enabling the artists 
to do things that like they shouldn't even be on tour. You know, you have to surround yourself with good, responsible people to help take care of you. You just need like and a lot of these people just have a bunch of fuck ups with them, you know, and just enable them to make bad decision after bad decision. And yeah, and especially that. especially in Lil Peep's case, because to me, right in retrospect, it was like take it was like shoving Elliot Smith into a tour bus and giving him like 80, 18 million dollars like go you know tour the fucking country yeah and, and these guys are like with like children like, like absolutely kids, who went you know? from like playing at his friend's party to like a state you know like going on tour right no shepherding no in-between stuff no lessons just whew. and i think that that collision though that absolutely dangerous like nitroglycerin collision of soundcloud rap and emo revival is what led to these tragic circumstances and moving into this new era that we've got going here with new metal, I feel almost lucky that there is no like big hype scene to really get behind. Like people are writing about this and and noticing that new metal is having a moment again, but we I don't think we have to contend with the same sort of pressure to succeed that came with that that moment because I remember pop music in 2017 surrounding that culture feeling super urgent. Feeling like this is all happening right now. And, and all the kids that were blowing up, they were like 15, 16, 17 years old. And it just felt like, it, yeah, I mean, it, it, it literally, so... it literally felt like something's going to go wrong here. So this is not going to work so out. It was so easy to blow up out of nowhere, like not even like make a song in your bedroom, blow up, tour the world, like no. You yeah, know what? Up. You know, we talked to about this it was nothing nowhere. And not, and mm. he was like, one, I'm hardcore vegan, and two, I never left. Uh, where does he live? Is it Montana or something? I think he lives up Montana, in, uh, yeah, no, like, no, it's somewhere in like uh, Vermont, the east. Vermont, yes, like yeah, a young Vermont, Bernie Sanders, yeah. and he's and, also straight edge, right? What did I say? Oh, vegan. He's, yes. he, he's vegan too, I think. Vegan, Thanks. hardcore straight edge, never moved to Los Angeles. I was going to say, I've been vegan yeah, for most of my life too, and that edge. has nothing to do with drugs. <laughs> Dude, I well, what I was like really curious about was the LA Just thing. Just the type of guy. Because you're supposed to blow up and come to Los Angeles, and that's when shit gets bad. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, I just stayed in Vermont on my farm so he sir i mean i hate to say it but he survived yeah like, no smart very so i think that I'm, I'm optimistic with the new metal thing because what's what's a bit of a struggle right now though is because there's not a flashpoint moment nobody's actually spending money on it so all of this scenes and generations most interesting bands to me are still having to work full-time day jobs yeah hustle it like crazy handle all their like we were talking about their seo research and viral marketing and stuff they're doing all of that shit because at least you know say what you will about the soundcloud era there was enough money being generated there that at least the artists could somewhat focus on making yeah. music and be in the studio from morning noon and night uh do you as as you know with your industry experience and whatnot what kind of advice would you give anyone looking to make new metal right now um <clears throat> well i think you need good songs for starting i think people sometimes underestimate how important a good song is so um, <laughs> i think that's the most important thing is good music speaks volumes and you know like i i although you know, the emo thing is big and people think of me as pop punk. Any chance I have to try to help the new metal revival, you know, like I'm all about it. Like I know you had Kid Bookie on recently, right? Yeah. And so like I co-wrote and produced the whole Mass Hysteria record with him, See? you know? See? So like, like for me. That... everywhere. Uh huh. 
we have like agents everywhere. There's like people at corporate structures all over that are big new metal fans and they're just waiting for their activation code. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 and him and I were talking and we had, we had worked on a couple songs before and I said to him, like, listen, I know you have a song with Corey, like, I, like, would you be into doing something heavy? And he was like, like trap metal. And I was like, no, not trap metal. Because I'm like, like, I'm talking straight up like new metal. And I was like, I, I have been needing to make like my corn tribute record my whole life. And I'm, I'm never going to have an opportunity to do this with good Charlotte. And I was like, I think that like you rapping over some like legit new metal would be insane. And he was like, bro, like I've wanted to do that forever. And I was like, please, let's do it. So, you know, we did one song and it came out really good. I was like, let's do it. Next thing we know, you know, we made this whole EP. And I, it's funny, like I, I look at that. I know I'm sort of veering off the topic a little bit, but like, Not really, I feel almost more connected to Mass Hysteria than I do to any good Charlotte record, purely because like, like, I wrote and played every single note, every instrument, every single drop of note on that. Like I wrote, like I did the whole thing by myself, you know, and like we did all over Zoom. Like me and Kid Bookie have never met in person and we've made like an album together, right? We would sit like this and we would write songs over Zoom. And I'd be like, how about the riff like this? Or let's do this. And he's like, hey, let's go here with it. We'd send tracks back and forth. But like we worked on that record for two years on and off. We would do a couple songs and he'd go do something. He'd get busy and come home. We'd do another two songs. But but we had so many conversations while making that record about, oh, do we call it new metal? Because that's like a weird word right now. Like, how do we like, how do you do new metal without saying you're doing new metal? Because some people, as soon as they hear the word, they're like, oh, I'm out. I'm like, ah, no, you got to listen to it because like, there are so many facets to it. And, but you also look at, at corn and you look at like, seether and they're both kind of considered new metal, but like, they're not similar at all, you know? And then you've got like, you know, even like E-Town Concrete or Rage Against the Machine or something, people who are like way more like rap metal. It's not new, like the new metal umbrella is huge. You know, like there's so many different little facets of it that you can do. So I think when you're coming back or people who want to play in that genre, you kind of have to take all the corny bits out of it that made new metal not good and like take those out and then take the parts of new metal that were really cool. Like that's how I look at it. I'm like, you can't just- get rid of the, uh, you can't get rid of the corny bits. Yeah, I guess are vital. I guess vital. that is goofy. Not. Corny. I think you have to double down. You, you really think you do. need to double down on it? Triple down. Oh yeah. Well, the I one need, thing that I we... need rock bands to get sillier. Okay, Actually, if you're listening yeah, to this, and that's hey, and that's fine. Into each his own. You you. But I do think we're missing characters. We are missing like the big rock stars. They're just not big rock stars anymore. Like your your average lead singer has a beard and wears the same clothes he would wear like if you worked a job at Home Depot. You know what I mean? And like that stuff kills me. I'm like, no, no, I'm, no. I'm really heartened to hear that you did um, the Kid Bookie EP, actually. That's stunning to me that I didn't know that. Oh, I, I, remember figured, being, I figured that you did know that. You're a good researcher. Getting my card pulled all over. No, I'm not. I don't do the research. Oh, I just okay, show okay. up and blabble. Um, Because I'm when I listened to it in advance of his podcast interview, I remember thinking like this is much more cohesive than trap metal because trap metal to me has always felt like a rap, a rapper's idea of what a metal album should sound like, whereas Mass Hysteria is a metal fan's idea of what a rap album could sound like. Sure. So it's got that. The scenes don't show. Everything's fused together in a way that be Well, thank you. You know, and I feel like Mass Hysteria kind of went a little under the radar. I thought it was going to really push him into like this. Oh, this dude's a rock star because he is such a character. Like when I'm talking about characters and rock stars, like Kid Bookie is like freaking, you know, like the ideal 
rock star. Put him on stage, like give him an audience and he will have the entire place just like staring at him and whatever he wants. You know, he's such he's such like a big character and has a huge heart. So um, I think you, know, you were a I little could... ahead of the curve with Mass Hysteria. I think you yeah. were actually just a little bit too, like in advance of it. it's like 2022. I wasn't at full capacity yet when you put that out, brother. Yeah, you right, needed, right, you right. Needed me. And, <laughs> and now, like with the stuff we're working on now, he's like, I want to think bigger. He was like, that felt like a little niche sound. He was like, I want to keep some of that, but he's like, I need a, I need a bigger sound, you know? And I'm like, okay. So he, he has a, like a lot of other producers working. So I think I have three or four songs on his new record and they're definitely different sounding, but he he's a great character. And there's a couple other guys, like I sent you the Shinigami record, right? I think mm -hmm. I, I that was you one did. of the things you I did. sent you, right? Yes. And that was another opportunity where he and I did that record together. And he, you know, he kind of hit me and goes, something about like someone posted some emo song and he was like, I could freaking write a way better emo song than any of these people. And I wrote him and I was like, show me, you know, and then he hits me up. He's like, you want to do an emo track together? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, let's let's see what that would sound like. So we start working on like a, a emo-ish track. But then he like sends me the vocals back and he's like screaming on it. I was like, dude, you can scream. Like you have a really good scream. And he, he, I was like, why, like, like screw emo. Like, why aren't we doing something new metal? He was like, bro, yes. You know, and he was like something like Mudvayne or Slipknot. And I was like, okay, okay. So I sat down and like, I, I wrote like a super low, like low A tuned riff and I sent it back to him. And like two hours later, he goes, how's this? And he sends me back the vocals and it was so good. I was like, dude please let's make a whole record like this. So I just keep like subliminally finding people and telling them, no, make a new metal record. <laughs> yes, you know, like, yes. You don't want to make the emo record. You don't want to do pop punk. They come you to you, they're like, they're like, oh, they're, you know, they're like, so. oh, Billy Martin, produce my emo record, produce my pop punk record. And you're like, I got a better idea. Yes, I have a better, because people always come to me, dude, like, uh, and, and this, you know, and I, this is also sort of veering off topic, but we talked about earlier, like when we stopped doing Good Charlotte for a little bit, and I wanted to get into focusing on producing. I just wanted to do hip hop. I was like, I've done rock forever. Like I've always really loved rap. I was like, I just want to make beats. I want to do electronic stuff. I just want to do stuff that's not pop punk. And so I was really focused on just making rap beats and like, you know, sending packs of beats out to rappers and this and that. And then slowly like, I'd make rap beats and then they'd be like, do you have anything pop punk? And I'm like, no, I'm trying to not do pop punk, you know? But it was so crazy to watch the rap scene like, like as far as I try to get away from emo and pop punk, it just came right back. Like, nope, like you can't get away from it. Like it, it's here right now. And like, and that was crazy to me to think that like, oh, again, timing, you know, it's almost like you try to do something and then the world just puts it right back in your lap. Like, oh, you want pop punk and hip hop to come together? Well, perfect. That's like already what you've been trying to do. So, um, you know, it's wild the way that works. And, and I don't know if, if I had to give anyone advice, like I said, the most important thing is like, make the music that you're passionate about, make the song that makes you excited. Like you have to go in the studio and just love the song that you're making. So when you finished it, you can't wait to share it. Don't make the record you think people need to hear, make the record that makes you happy. Like that's where good music comes from. And tune down to at least drop C sharp. Sure, anything above that you're wasting time. I mean, who the hell cares? <laughs> um, Riv, did you get any of those questions back? Yeah, so, well, I guess just to just to kind of respond to that, I, I think, one thing that I have always found so well okay I'm young I was born in 1997 like I got into everything like six years behind um at least when it was coming out or that's more. the best thing about music though it doesn't go anywhere you know it doesn't go anywhere um 
like the first album I ever bought in middle school was hybrid theory and like Lincoln Park was blowing up on the Transformers soundtrack but that was not what I was listening to um but what I what I think is so interesting is that like your music was always so like you were listening to other music and really responding to like this is I guess to to your good timing was that like it wasn't just luck and good timing it was being able to look at what was going on around you and respond to it and, and make music about it and yeah just thinking about how like when when you're responding to seo pressures or like marketing pressures you have this this layer of distinction um that was that thought another thought i have is just how how has the experience of being in this band changed as you have grown into adulthood and just like I don't know do you ever feel like you are trapped in in adolescence with this do I feel like what about adolescence that, that you're kind of trapped in trapped in adolescence or trapped in like specific I definitely, moments of I mean in time to some extent yeah like I never really feel like I had to grow up grow up you know what I mean to some extent because yeah. I literally went from high school like on tour um like straight into like my job and then I still do the same thing and you know like I go to school to pick up the kids and I think like okay like I'm the only dad who like still dresses like I don't I could just like wear whatever like I'm you know covered in tattoos and like wearing whatever I want and a lot of dads like show up in like suits to pick up their kids at school and I think I've never had to do that you know like that's a trip and uh, you you figure oh coming to LA like all the dads are gonna look like me you know like it's not the case because it's such a small percentage of people who get to do what we get to do um, so there is a part of that ironically uh, the drummer for Cold Chamber his son goes to school with my son so I see him at school pick up I'm like oh, yeah other tattoo dad with a mohawk what's up you know which is um, and fine we didn't know each other before that I just saw him at school pick up one day I was like dude you're the drummer for Cold Chamber no way so you know another fun new metal story okay. for you but yeah I definitely think that. There's a little bit of being trapped in adolescence, but um, obviously having kids changes all that. As soon as I had, you know, my wife and I had our first kid, you're like, okay, like it, that's what everything matters now. Everything I'm doing now is for that. Like when I go on tour, if the tour is successful, I'm happy because I made money to support my family. Like if the show sold out and my kids get to come, they get to see dad play to like a big sold out show. And I'm more excited that like my wife and kids get to see the show than I am for like me to get to see, like, it's just different. Like it, it, it puts like a whole new perspective on everything. So up until that point, I probably did live semi adolescency the whole time. And still to some point, I still feel like I'm a kid sometimes. Cause like I wake up and like all my other friends, like, have to go and they complain about how much they hate their job and i just like go downstairs and walk into the studio and just like start making stuff you know and i'm like this is great like this is what i get to do and so i'm I'm very thankful and i do appreciate it but sure there's times when i think mm, what would have college been like maybe college would have been cool you know like what what would have this you know right and but then i look back i'm like no i still wouldn't change it but there is things that you think like okay i definitely missed out on a lot of things that maybe people in that exploring part of your life in your early 20s you're trying to figure stuff out and you're doing things and you know not to say i'm like justin bieber and i had to grow up in front of the press but sure you know from like 17 yeah. to 21 I mean, you're, you're, you're a public figure and everything you do like people are seeing it sure you know that that definitely makes possibly makes you grow up having a slightly different mindset than the average person of that age Good well question. i do think i do think that about does it for me 
uh, unless Cran has anything. Cran, do you want to reveal that you actually hate Good Charlotte and always did? Uh, that's a negative. <laughs> I, just, I, I, I'm actually the only dad on the show, so dad gang rise up. Nice. You got to do that, um, man. I think you and I are actually the same age. You graduated in 2000, so you're like 40 yep. or 41. That's right. Like four days or five. Last week I turned 41. No, I turned 42 last week. Oof. Oh, man. man you're like a baby. March, My bad. So. You're like a baby over here. <laughs> you can see, but you can tell which one of you two has had a union job. I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll apologize for that after. <laughs> Okay. This well, been- uh, I just want to say real quick that you did not miss anything in your twenties. Okay, going thank to you. college and having to hang out at bars and stuff to meet people, pain in the bud. Okay, good to know. I can cross I that off. Nice to worry about that. In college, but, but well, I'm a nerd. So. Oh, college sucked. Oh, this has been anyway. Holiday <laughs> Kirk with the New Metal Agenda. I would like to once again thank our guests so much. Thank our guest Billy Martin for coming on here and proving all of his new metal bona fides and even pulling my card a couple times. Billy, thank you so much for taking time out of your of day course. to make this happen. I never get to talk new metal. This is fun. Are you in LA? I am, yeah. Oh, Link, bro. Link. Absolutely. I didn't need, until I listened to the interview, I figured that you, you know, were just in, in some middle of nowhere spot where new metal is living strong, but I was like, okay, he's in LA. No, I'm bringing it that'd back be, to where that'd it started. That'd be me and Riv, actually. That's, yeah, right. that's, that's why I've hired these two. They're hey, my good, eyes good, and ears. Good. This that. has been Holiday Kirk with the New Metal Agenda, just reminding you all to be platforming and supporting all of the upcoming bands and artists that are making this music out there. Tell everyone you know, and have yourselves a great night.